This morning we are resuming our series through the book of Acts. You may remember, for those who have been here for a little while, uh, we were at one point going through the book of Acts. Larry spent six weeks in October and November in the last six verses of chapter 2, talking about the life of the church. And before that, we spent four weeks in chapter 1 and the first 41 verses of chapter 2. The book of Acts traces the birth, growth, and the spread of the church after Jesus' resurrection and ascension. The church is built upon the person and work of Jesus Christ. The church is called to inward spiritual growth and outward evangelistic witness. And we're going to spend the next four weeks focused on an account from chapters 3 and 4 of the book of Acts. Uh, This account begins with a healing. It leads to a proclamation. It is followed by a trial. And it ends with a prayer. Uh, So for this morning, we're going to focus on the first part, the healing. As we look at Acts chapter 3, verses 1 to 10. As we go to God's Word today, I want us to consider this sentence. The power of Jesus turns the helpless and needy into healed worshipers. The power of Jesus turns the helpless and needy into healed worshipers. And basically I have two points. Helpless and needy, healed worshipers. Easy. This passage has much to teach us about the kindness of God and the call of the church. So let's read Acts chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man, lame from birth, was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the Beautiful Gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him as did John, and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand, and he raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, He stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple, asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. It's the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we need what only you can provide. And so may it be by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would give us insight into your word. By the power of your Holy Spirit, that my words would be faithful to your word. That our hearts would be stirred to greater love for you. We thank you that you are a merciful God. We thank you that you are a saving and rescuing God. 
And the words I have written here seem insufficient. They are insufficient. Be our sufficiency, Lord. Strengthen me and bless us for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen. I can't see my son. There we go. Zach, I want to see Zach too. Uh, Can you imagine what it's like to be this man? This man we just read about. We learn later in the chapter uh, that he is more than 40 years old. And from birth, he had been lame. Unable to walk at the very least, probably not paralyzed, but most likely without the use of his entire lower body. And now in our day and age, we know people in this situation and their disabilities prove to be challenging for them. But praise God that many who are in this state are able to find equipment to help them, doctors to care for them. And despite their struggles, they offer much to our society. I'm sure if time permitted, we could tell hundreds or thousands of stories of those who have overcome such adversity to be a blessing to the world around us. But not this man. That was not his lot in life. In the time of the early church, those who were lame as this man was were essentially considered useless. Baggage. He's baggage. The best he had to offer was that he could be carried places like baggage and put somewhere so that he could beg, so that some kind or religiously burdened souls might take pity on him and give him some money. Every day this man was carried and laid at the beautiful gate of the temple, what was most likely what's called the the Nicanor or Corinthian gate of the temple. It was referred to as the beautiful gate because it was more ornately decorated than the other gates. It was covered in gold and silver and bronze. Many commentators agree that it was the gate that led to the court of the women and the court of the Gentiles in the temple. Uh, That it was a gate by which many made their initial entrance into the temple. And therefore it was a desirable place for a beggar to be laid. Twice daily, at 9 a.m. and 3 p.m., there would be times of prayer at the temple. And beggars sought to be there then as people made their way in. Can you imagine what it's like to be this man? It was a desirable location gate-wise because a lot of people are going in. But I, but I also want to add this. It, it's a desirable location in general Near the temple. Why? Well, there's a few reasons we could say why, but I want to take it all the way back to the source. This man is near the temple, and that's a good place to be because we have a God who cares for the needy. 
People were coming and they give alms. They would give their gifts to the poor. Giving gifts to the poor, you know whose idea that is? God's. That's a good church answer. That's God's idea to give gifts to the poor. The time doesn't permit a full treatment of this, but maybe some of you have endeavored. It's, what, February 5th today? Maybe some of you this year have endeavored to try and read through the Bible in a year or two years or three years. Anybody on that journey? Anybody trying that? How you doing? Hey, listen. Remember, if you're saying like, yeah, February, I was doing really good from January 1st to the 3rd. Uh, and then it kind of tailed off. Remember that it's the journey, not the destination, right? It's okay if you feel like, ah, oh, here we go, condemnation. I tried, it failed. Turn your two-year plan into a four-year plan then. The word is the benefit. Anyway, maybe you're reading through the Old Testament right now if you're trying to make this journey. And as you read through the Old Testament, note how frequently the Lord looks after the poor and needy and tells his people to do the same. How frequently he says to people like, if you have a field and you harvest your field, what do you do with the leftover stuff? Do you go out and grab it so there's no leftovers? Leave it for the poor. Leave it for the sojourner. Leave it for the foreigner. The Lord looks after the poor and needy. It's a a theme throughout Scripture. And he tells his people to do the same. Look out for the poor and needy. The heart of our faith, which we're going to get to shortly, is that we have a God who rescues the helpless. Those who have nothing to offer him except their weakness and their opposition, and their sin, and yet he is powerfully merciful toward them. Jeff started the service with it. As for me, I am poor and needy, but what? The Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O my God. As he has helped his people, they are called to do so for others. We see many commendations of this in the Old Testament. We see Jesus commending it in the Sermon on the Mount, right? Giving to the needy. The people of God, by the Holy Spirit of God, should have a heart of care for the needy. A care for the needy that begins within the walls of the church so that we can say along with Luke in Acts chapter 4, verse 34, there was not a needy person among them. That should be said to be true within the church. There was not a needy person among them. But the heart of care for the needy should extend beyond the walls of the church as we have opportunity, both in the spiritual realm, which we're going to get to shortly, and the physical realm. We can't meet all the needs of everybody in the world. We're not called to meet the needs of everybody in the world. But we ought to pray that our lives and our hearts reflect the heart of our Heavenly Father who pays mind to the poor and the needy. 
Help can look like a thousand different things. And money isn't always the right answer, as we're going to see in this passage. But what is your heart toward the needy? Is the first question you ask when you hear about somebody who's needy, well, what they do to get themselves into this trouble? That's not the Lord's heart. He knows what we did to get ourselves into trouble, but he, but he helps us anyway. What is your heart toward the needy? And how does it line up with the picture we see in Scripture of God's heart toward the needy? Our help for those who are in need must be discerning and wise. But there is no doubt that our Lord loves to help the needy. This man was laid at the beautiful gate to ask alms of those who entered. And these beggars were not getting rich doing this. They were basically hoping to make enough to pay their own way. I said a few minutes ago, this guy was like baggage. He was trying to make enough to make it so that it was like he was worth continuing to live. He sees Peter and John approaching the temple around the 3 o'clock prayer hour, and he asks to receive alms from them. What are his expectations? What's he expecting to do to see happen? Money, right? It's not a trick question. Maybe they'll throw a coin in my bucket. Maybe they'll choose one of the other beggars here. But he had no idea and no conception of what was about to happen. So from Peter and John's perspective, they're headed to the temple. It's the hour of prayer. Jesus had died, risen, and ascended into heaven. He filled the believers with his Holy Spirit. He was building his church. And yet at this point in the early church, they're still doing the same things that they did for worship when Jesus was with them. They're going to the temple. There's a couple important quick items to be noted from that. First, it teaches us that the apostles did not believe that they were starting a new religion. Right? They didn't think, hey, we started this new thing. They saw Jesus as the fulfillment of everything that had been foretold in the Jewish scriptures. They saw Jesus as fulfilling what they had done, what they had believed. He did. Therefore, they still went to the temple. They went with one of their goals being to persuade the people that Jesus is the one that they were promised. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the one who accomplishes what Larry read about in Isaiah chapter 35. Did you read? There's a reason why we did Isaiah chapter 35 today. Did you catch it? Did you catch the link between Isaiah 35 and Acts chapter 3? Anybody catch it? What was it? What was the link? Do you know? Do you know, Larry? I have suspicions, but I All right, I'll tell you. I mean, Jesus fulfills all of Isaiah chapter 35 and, and the, the way of salvation, but 5 and 6, the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped, then shall the lame man Leap like a deer. 
and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. Did you notice the word leap in Acts chapter 3? Do you think that that was there by accident? That Jesus is fulfilling. The power of Jesus' name is fulfilling the prophecies of Isaiah chapter 35. It must also be noted that the temple would no longer be, they're going to the temple because that's what they do. And they're telling people about Jesus. But the temple would no longer be essential to the worship of God. There is no longer a need. There's a most holy place in the temple. Do they need that anymore? Nope. Sure don't. In the most holy place, sacrifices will be made by the high priest for the temporary overlooking of the sins of the people. Jesus, the great high priest, came and laid down his life as a sacrifice, atoning for the sins of all who would believe once for all time. No need for a most holy place anymore. Therefore, the temple is not the place that they go to worship, but the temple is the people of God united by the work of the Holy Spirit through the finished work of Jesus Christ. And it was going to be difficult for this group to leave. The temple probably felt like comfort, familiarity. That's what we've done. God's going to take some drastic measures to get this group out with the gospel. But as they went, they would not need to look back to a specific place of worship as central. The gathered people of God are the temple. And therefore, wherever the gathered people of God are, the Lord is building his church. Peter and John come upon this man as they head into the temple. And he asks them for alms. And did you notice the words about this encounter? Peter and John, it says, do you have, do you have your Bibles open? Because you should. Or your phones with the Bible on them. But we get, we get to, to verse 4, right? He asks, well, verse 3, he asks Peter and John to receive alms. And it says here in verse 4, Peter directed his gaze at him. Then Peter says what? Look at us. I, 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 I could be reading too much in, but I, I don't think so. Peter says, look at us. This guy is probably not used to people wanting to look at him. Right? Think of your encounters with needy folks. I don't want to speculate, but a lot of times we don't want to look. And, and Peter says, look at us. And I wonder if this guy, I'm not, I don't want to get into too much speculation, but like, nobody wants to look at me. Nope, nobody does that. He's probably used to people walking by and just flipping a coin in a bucket and, and turning their head and not wanting to deal with what is going on right there and feeling good about themselves because they put a coin in a bucket and moving on. 
But Peter says, look at us. And this man, it says, he fixed his attention on them. Expecting to receive something from them. Oh boy, would he receive something from them. Peter tells him, I have no silver and gold, but what I have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. What a crazy statement. That is crazy. But guess what? Exactly what Peter said happened. Imagine the shock of the man, the shock of the onlooking crowd as they watch this happen. They know this guy. They recognize this guy. He's been begging here for a long time. This morning, he couldn't use his legs. And now he's entering the temple, walking and leaping and praising God. Up to this very moment, this man had never walked. Ever. Not a step. He's 40 years old. Jeff, from a physical therapy perspective, if a person never uses their muscles, do they just like get right up and start walking and running? Zero chance. There's zero chance. There's therapy. Even if they could start therapy. And we know stories, right, of people who became paraplegic or quadriplegic, and it's miraculous when we see them just barely able to take some steps with the help of devices and years of physical therapy. We say that's a miracle, and it is a miracle. It's amazing. But this is a better miracle. Here, immediately, it says, his feet and ankles were made strong. He didn't need to go to physical therapy. He did not need to see Jeff Crispin. He got a, Peter, or Peter takes him by the hand. He stands up, and immediately he's walking and leaping and praising God. That's amazing. Peter and John are saying it. They're showing it. They're saying what Jesus did, what he began, what he showed us. It is continuing. The kingdom of God is upon you. We're going to get to that next week. A kingdom where the helpless are made whole, the needy are rescued, the broken are restored. Peter and John are heralding the power of the Lord Jesus, and his healing work leads to worship. A couple times at the end of this passage in verse 8 and 9, Luke speaks of this man praising God. Praising God for his mighty work. The crowd is in awe. They're amazed. Undoubtedly, it would cause some of them to, to worship as well. At least be like, who did this? How did this happen? And it would provide an opportunity for Peter to speak about the mighty name in which it happened. We're going to get to that next week. But brothers and sisters, friends who are gathered here, let's not lose sight of what we have to learn from this passage. This passage is amazing and true. I want to say true, right? This is real. This really happened. As amazing as it is, 
this passage is not primarily about the healing of a man's legs. Maybe some read this passage and say, why don't we do that? Why don't we just have like healing services where everybody walks up and I just say, in the name of Jesus, stop having that problem. And it stops for everybody. Why don't we do that? It's got to be, it begs the question, right? When you read these accounts, why don't we do that? And you could find other places you could go, other churches you could be a part of. And they would say, the reason it's not happening is because you don't have enough faith. I don't believe that. This is a bit of a rabbit trail, but one I thought worth exploring for a couple minutes. Do we believe that God still heals people physically? Okay, you got the first answer. Good. <laughs> yes, absolutely. The Lord, we, have, we know stories of the Lord healing people. They're not fake. Does he always heal people? No. Sometimes he does, and sometimes he doesn't. Do you think that guy was the only one there begging on that day? He wasn't. Highly unlikely. But the Lord had a purpose for this man's healing that went beyond the physical. The physical was going to be a pointer to a spiritual reality. Nowhere in the New Testament epistles are the people of God given a command to heal other people. Unless it comes by way of restoration after somebody has repented of sin, of specific sin. We are not apostles in the same way that the original 12 were. Yes, miracles still happen, praise God. Many of you can attest to them. But nobody holds the office of healer. What we do see throughout Scripture are many clear commands to know, speak, and live in light of the words that give life, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters in Christ who are here this morning, you may think that your story lacks the drama of this one. But in fact, it does not. You are not lame. Your testimony is not that you were lame. I just couldn't use my legs. Your testimony is that you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were dead spiritually. No life in your bones. Unwilling and incapable of believing the truth. unable to even hear the truth the right way. If you're here this morning thinking the songs we sing are weird or crazy or stupid and the prayers we pray are useless and the confession of Jesus as our only hope for forgiveness and eternal life is ridiculous or silly, I guess I would say this to you. I understand. 
If you're the type of person who says, I'd love to believe all that, but I can't make myself believe. I understand that too. But please note this. We will not be changing what we do. And we will not be changing what we say. And we will not be changing what we believe or what we sing or what we pray. Because we believe that just as Peter spoke a word that made the lame man walk, the Lord has granted to us a word that makes dead people live. That turns the spiritually blind into the seeing. Makes the spiritually lame to walk. Gives the spiritually dead life. This word is the message of the cross. The gospel of Jesus Christ. We're going to tangibly express it in sharing the Lord's Supper in a few minutes. The gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought Never be ashamed of the gospel. Can you imagine if Peter and John are walking to the temple that day and Peter turns to John and he says, I think we could heal this guy, but it's going to be, people are going to think we're weird. I'm not going to say anything. That, that would just be too weird. Look, I look like a fool to say that. What would happen on that day? No healing. We ought never be ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. If there is no word of Christ, the lame man does not walk and the spiritually dead do not live. The message of the cross tells us that while we were dead in our sins, Christ died for us. The Son of God, fully God and fully man, lived the perfect life of obedience toward God that we do not. He died a sacrificial death on a Roman cross for no crime of his own, paying the penalty for our sin and rebellion against God, and he was raised in victory over sin and the grave, raised in triumph, ascended to the right hand of God the Father, coming again. We're going to talk about that next week. And ever living. Right now, Jesus Christ ever lives to intercede before the Father for all whose trust is in Him. Alone. Brothers and sisters in Christ, by grace and grace alone, you have been saved through faith. Do you agree with that? If you disagree with that, please come talk to me. We were worse than that man in Acts chapter 3. We were spiritually dead, and a word brought us to life. That same word is still bringing people to life. That same word is still healing people from their greatest of diseases. Separation from God. Destination, hell. What changes that destination? Hearing the word of God, the gospel of Jesus with faith. 
It is by grace and grace alone that you have been saved. And this is not by works. It is the gift of God so that none of you can boast. And if none of us can boast, and if he has so graciously made us alive and given us ears to hear, what is the proper response but worship? The power of Jesus turns the helpless and needy into healed worshipers. That's what this gathering is. Healed worshipers. Gathering together to testify to Jesus doing the thing that's impossible from a human perspective. You are a gathering of this man. The lame man who was made to walk. The impossible that happened. That's what this gathering is. And that's why we worship. Rejoice today and herald that today. He still turns the helpless and needy into healed worshipers. The world is every bit as desperate as that man. We are every bit as needy as that man. And only a mighty word from God can rescue and restore. Praise God because he's given us that word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, forgive us. For it is easy for us to forget what you have done for us. Easy to forget that we were every bit as needy, needier even, than this man. Hopeless, without hope and without you in this world, but because of your great love, through the power of the gospel message proclaimed, we have been rescued. We have been healed. Forgive us, Lord, for our forgetfulness. Forgive us, Lord, for forgetting how desperate we were. We were no better. Forgive us, Lord, for forgetting that the gospel message is still your power for salvation. We, we are brokenhearted over those we know and love who don't know you. But even in those scenarios, we often are afraid to tell them the gospel. Maybe because we've already shared it and it seems like it didn't work. Maybe because we're afraid of how they're going to react. Maybe because we doubt that you would actually save certain people. But Father, we have learned that we are not you. And you call us to be faithful gospel ministers and entrust the bringing to life to you. And so help us to not grow weary in our gospel ministry. Help us not to be ashamed in our gospel ministry. For the message of the cross, though foolishness, and a stumbling block to many, it is your power for salvation. So, Father, help us. Forgive us for where we have hidden that word. Forgive us for where we have forgotten how mighty you have been to save in our own lives. 
And thank you, Father, that we can come to your table again and be reminded that every single time our sin or our shortcoming is revealed and we call out to you and say, Father, forgive me, your answer is, in Christ, your sins are forgiven. Thank you, Father. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.